You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I go over updates in campus news and discuss international student recruitment efforts. After that, I give new information on COVID-19 statistics, and then I speak to Dr. John Nunez from Concordia College and the Bipartisan Policy Center about censorship perception on college campuses. Then Coda tells us about updates on the Oxford High School shooting, and we hear from Anton Schindler, and he tells us about specialty players in baseball. After that, Eliza Droder goes over CSU's athletics. To conclude today's show, Coda explains some updates on technology with WhatsApp and cybersecurity. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Ellie Shannon with your campus and local news for Tuesday, December 7th. Colorado State University students are in the 15th week of the semester and finals are next week. The Rocky Mountain Review begins our break after this Thursday episode. CSU Rams had an eventful week last week with the men's basketball winning their ninth straight game in a row and with CSU firing head coach Steve Adazio on December 2nd. Adazio spent two seasons with the Rams, and CSU is undergoing a buyout for $3 million. CSU went 3-9 and in the 2021 season, with an overall record of 4-12 and under Adazio. Just four days after the announcement of Adazio's firing, CSU hired a new head coach for football. Jay Norvell, the head coach at the University of Nevada, will be taking over as the head football coach at CSU. Not only does Norvell have a respected coaching history with the University of Nevada, but he will be the first black head coach in the program's history at CSU. Norvell will be publicly introduced Wednesday at 2.30 in the afternoon inside the Iris and Michael Smith Alumni Center on the east side of Canvas Stadium, according to Kevin Little of the Coloradoan. Make sure to listen to Eliza Drotar coming up with more information on this and all other CSU sports. CSU launched two new units to lead international student recruiting and enrollment. CSU's Office of International Programs launched programs for learning academic and community English, also known as PLACE, and the International Enrollment Center, also known as the IEC. The IEC is led by Director Stein Verholst, and PLACE will be directed by a new hire, Lauren Kinter. Chris DeRozier of CSU Source News states that the IEC introduces the university to prospective students around the world and helps them navigate CSU and learn how to earn a degree here. PLACE will be a resource to those that need help with English familiarity and will help develop communication skills in a variety of contexts. Both programs have started working with students this year, but Verholst and Kinter say that there is still growing to do. To learn more about these programs, visit source.colostate.edu. CSU and Adams State University recently signed a partnership for students seeking an engineering degree. Starting in fall 2022, students at Adams State University will have the option to enroll in a bachelor's degree program from CSU's Department of Mechanical Engineering. It will be offered on campus at Adams State. Christian Putlitz, CSU Department Head and Professor of Mechanical Engineering, told Ann Manning of CSU Source News, quote, There are lots of students in the San Luis Valley who, because of family or financial situations, can't leave the valley to come up to Fort Collins and get their engineering degree, end quote. The first two years of the four-year program will be taught by Adams State faculty, while the last two years will be taught by CSU faculty. The State Department of Education also awarded Adams State a five-year grant of over $4 million to help partially fund the new collaboration between the universities. This is huge for the San Luis Valley, and for more upcoming updates on the collaboration, visit source.colostate.edu. Now on to local news. The CSU Systems Board of Governors voted Friday to approve a plan to sell the site of Hughes Stadium to the city of Fort Collins, according to Noah Pasley of the Collegian and from the resolution from the board. After a memorandum of understanding between the city and CSU was signed in August, the approval of the plan was the next step in selling the 161 acres for $12.5 million. 
CSU is still working with Cottonwood Land and Farms about developing affordable housing for CSU staff and faculty. And the CSU System Assistant Vice Chancellor for External Relations, Tiana Kennedy, stated that CSU is still several steps away from any sale. To learn more about Hughes Stadium, visit collegian.com. Fort Collins has opened a new temporary shelter for the winter. Located at 212 West Mountain Avenue, the shelter is an overflow for men experiencing homelessness. Fort Collins Rescue Mission is set to oversee the temporary shelter, since the permanent shelter is already at capacity. According to Austria Khan of the Collegian, the Rescue Mission staff has been able to help more than 60 men experiencing homelessness in the Fort Collins community to find jobs. Precision Security Team staff, staff will also be on-site during the hours of operation, and Senior Director Seth Forwood told Khan of the Collegian that Precision Security worked at their temporary shelter last year and they were happy with Precision Services. The shelter will be open until the end of April, and for more information, visit collegian.com. Fort Collins Police Services sent out a press release warning of multiple stranger attacks in the Fort Collins area. Starting in August, three young women have been attacked at random by a male. Fort Collins Police Services do not know if the attacks are all connected, but the description each woman gave police pointed to a male in his 20s or 30s. If you have any information on this case, please call the Crimes Against Persons Unit at 970-416-2825. Thanks for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM. This is DJ Hurricane thanking you for listening to KCSU Fort Collins. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, Coach Steve Adazio was fired. In women's volleyball, the team has continued on their massive winning streak going 7-1, and one, beating the UTSA Roadrunners. Their game this week is against Weber State. In men's basketball, the team remains undefeated, beating Little Rock and St. Mary's here in Fort Collins. Their next game is the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame Classic against Mississippi State. In women's volleyball, the team competed in the National Invitational Volleyball Tournament. They won their first game against Houston Baptist and lost their final game against UTEP to end their season. In cross country, the women placed 17th in the NCAA Championship to end their season. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net to get tickets for men's and women's basketball and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 34 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Now, before I start this episode... I want to apologize. I was planning to start the rundowns of the best players from each team per division, but unfortunately, something a little bit more important has come up in the baseball world. You see, I wasn't really aware how time-sensitive the episode about the history of the MLB's strikes and lockdowns was going to be, and how important it was that I talked about them when I did. Just a couple of hours ago, Rob Manfred 
and the MLB owners have decided to put the MLB into a lockdown. This will be the first lockdown since the horrible 1994-1995 strike that cancelled the season and postseason, and the ninth lockdown in the long history of the MLB. Now, in my lockout episode, I mentioned the most recent collective bargaining agreement that was enacted between the owners and the players union, and how, well, soon enough, a new agreement would have to be discussed. Many people saw this strike coming, but I believe that many more were really hoping that they were going to be able to figure something out before the lockout would ever be needed. This lockout much like the ones before it, have to do primarily with compensation for young players as well as limitations on tanking or losing a lot of games on purpose in order to receive a higher draft pick in the MLB draft. And, once again, there will be talks about the semantics of free agency and salary arbitration. So, if you were wondering why so many free agents, I mean hundreds of free agents, were quickly trying to find teams to sign with before December 1st, that's why. I mean, they were just trying to sign with the team before any changes could be made to free agency or to a possible salary cap, of which talks have been happening. You see, the players demanded a number of things including extending more control over their terms of their contract, especially for the younger players who, by contract, are under control of the MLB team for their first six years of their professional baseball career. And actually, that's the way that they've been doing it for a pretty long time now, as it's a really easy way for owners to kind of decide the fates of the careers of many of these young prospects, way before they get deeper into their career. Along with the huge disapproval of the salary cap, players felt that limits should be put on teams that are tanking because, quote, it reduces competitive integrity within the MLB and incentivizes teams with no intention of winning games, end quote. The owners had come up with a proposal earlier in November which, among other things, aim to establish narrower perimeter for each team's combined salary with a hard minimum of $100 million per team with an incremental luxury tax, as they call it, beginning at $180 million. So, in other words, the owners want to set a salary cap to limit the amount of money that they're giving players to kind of make it more even between all of these teams. And if the team has more than $180 million, they would be taxed pretty heavily on it, giving them incentive to keep their salary in that $100 million to $170 million range. This way, it's just so much less likely for a big market team to outbid small market teams for much more talented players, since they'll all be playing with similar amounts of money. Which honestly isn't a terrible idea, but at the same time, it means that players' contracts will be way less than teams are capable of paying them now. I mean, if something like this were ever to be passed, the days of these multi-year 280 million or 300 million or more contracts would just be gone in light of maybe a $2 million to $30 million contract or something along those lines. The MLB also wouldn't be the first to institute a cap like this, as the NFL and the NHL have actually been doing the same with some pretty good success. Owners also offered to eliminate the requirement for teams to lose a draft pick, when signing a free agent who rejected their qualifying offer, as well as doing a kind of draft lottery like the NBA has. A universal designated hitter, which actually a lot of pitchers have been going for, as well as an increase in playoff teams, which a lot of fans have been going for, was included in one of these offers, 
as well as an increase to both the player minimum salary and the competitive balance tax threshold, which is pretty similar to the luxury tax that I mentioned before. However, all of these kind of different varying offers were all rejected by the Players Association. And that kind of just led directly to the lockout to just give time to the two sides of the argument to just iron some things out, hopefully agree on something before we reach the beginning of the season. But after an abrupt end to the negotiations that led to it, we're just back in a kind of similar spot that baseball has been in the past eight lockdowns as well. I mean, just two parties that are trying to get the absolute best for themselves no matter what. The MLB lockout started December 2nd at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and should hopefully last until the start of spring training, maybe through spring training, but should end by the beginning of the regular season. I'm afraid that there will be some serious repercussions if the lockdown leaks into the regular season. I mean, let alone spring training. I mean, as we saw in 1994 and 1995, it could mean a drop in fan bases again. I mean, like we've already seen, or just get so much worse. So, I'll keep you updated on what's going on as things begin to develop. I will say, unfortunately... Don't expect a quick and easy solution to this problem. I mean, it's been going on for so long that I don't think that it's just going to be a very quick solution that they just come up with overnight. Yeah, it might just be another cold and dark winter. Anyway, let's talk about something a little more cheerful, why don't we? I mean, since we had to cover the lockdown, I want to go over a couple of just specialty players, and explain how they're so different from what you may think a specialty player is. I'm talking about guys that are really on a team to do eh, one thing or have a big part in doing one thing, and that's about it. The first guy that I want to bring up is Terrence Gore. Now, Terrence is an interesting case because he is really only on MLB teams to do one thing and that's to steal bases. You see, Gore has actually been in the major leagues for about seven years, but in those seven years, he has only played in 102 games. Now, to put that into perspective, let's say that you're a starter for a baseball club. I mean, you'll more than likely play 110 to 160 games in a year. So, already more than Gore has played in his entire MLB career. And not only that, but like, if you're a starter, by the time you're in your seventh year in baseball, I mean, you're somewhere in the ballpark of about 900 games, give or take a few. Gore started his career with the Kansas City Royals, where he played for five years, and he played the majority of his games there, which was 86, and actually had the majority of his plate appearances there as well, with 72. Since then, however, he was with the Dodgers for two games, the Cubs for 14 games, and the Braves for their most recent postseason push. That's right. Gore didn't even play a regular season game with the Braves before he was called in as a pinch runner in the 2021 NLDS. Honestly, the craziest part about all of this is that Gore actually has two World Series rings. He was part of the Kansas City Royals when they won the World Series in 2015, and he was part of the Atlanta Braves when they won the World Series this year. In his career, Gore only has 15 hits and one RBI, but he's crossed the plate 32 times, and he's stolen 40 bases. But almost all of those stolen bases have come in really big situations. I mean, you can look up videos of the 5'7", 160-pound Gore just speeding around the bases, covering about 29.9 feet per second, just 8 tenths off the Dodgers' Trey Turner, who covers about 30.7 feet per second, and is actually currently listed as the fastest player in the MLB right now. 
Terrence Gore uses his speed to attract teams who just need a fast option on their bench, a guy that can steal a base in the most challenging situations without batting an eye. And that's exactly what he does. There is another guy, however, by the name of Gerardo Parra, that comes to mind when thinking about these specialty players. I mean, one big difference that you'll notice right away is that Gerardo Parra, unlike Gore, has actually played a lot of baseball in his career. 12 seasons, to be exact. Well, that's not including his overseas work with the Yamiuri Giants in Japan. But even so, Parra has played 1,519 games at the major league level, with 1,335 hits, 90 home runs, 532 RBIs, and 97 stolen bases. And, not to mention, Parra also has a World Series championship ring that he won with the Nationals in 2019. The Venezuelan Parra definitely has a lot going for him in his offense and his pretty unstoppable defense. But similarly to Gore, there's one thing that he is really good at. Just being a positive presence in the dugout. You know how some rappers, when they perform live or even make music for a record or a CD, whatever, well, they usually have background singers and hype men that will yell random words every now and then. Well, some baseball clubs, who have guys like Gerardo Parra, kind of have a similar thing. A hype man, if you will, for the dugout. These are the guys that keep their team fired up, even if they're losing. The guys that will get their team hyped up before a game, and so on and so forth. I mean, many teams, including the 2019 Nationals, use Para for just that. Although he only played in 89 games during that season, Para was always around the dugout, picking the team up and keeping them going. I remember watching some of the postseason games from that run, from the Divisional to the Championship Series, and, well, eventually the World Series, where Gerardo Parra would come up to pinch hit late in the game with his Baby Shark walk-up song. And although, at the heart of it, the Baby Shark song is for children, uh, toddlers even, it gave a recognizable beat and a dance that everyone in the stadium could dance and sing along to. I can't imagine how intimidating it would have been if you were a pitcher and everyone in the dugout and in the crowd were doing the weird clapping motion that goes along with that song. I mean, it gave people something to rally behind in the best and the worst of times. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, but how can that ever help a team in the long run? I mean, just having a guy that's just always smiling? Well, you have to remember that baseball is primarily a mental game. I mean, it doesn't matter how talented you may be at the sport. If you're not in the right headspace, you're not going to do well. So often, we see professional hitters slump. I mean, it's not because they all of a sudden have just lost the ability to make contact with anything. I mean, it could be something as simple as just not being in the right mindset when they get to the field. You know, maybe they're worried about breaking out of the slump or even getting sent down to the minors or something like that. But when you have a guy like Para, you have someone that can help to break these players out of this mindset and help them regain their confidence. And from there, it just turns infectious. Now, I'm not saying that Para was the sole reason that the Nationals won the World Series in 2019, but I wouldn't doubt it in the slightest if Para was right there in the locker room helping his team get fired up to win the 10 out of their last 11 games of the season in order for the Nationals to even make the wild card. Just saying. I want you to look at each one of the teams that you're interested in and try to find the Gerardo Parra on that team. I'm sure that if you look hard enough, one will stick out. And I'm talking to you, Rymel Tapia. I just can't express how important it is to have a guy like this, backing up your players and helping them through these tough times. I mean, it's part of being on a ball club after all, having this brotherhood and the camaraderie that comes with it. 
So in next week's episode, we will be going back on track with the regularly scheduled episodes going over each division in the major leagues and picking through each team in the division to find the best player on that team and then compare them to the others in that division. I will also keep you as up-to-date as possible in terms of the 2021 MLB lockout and give you any and all news that I hear at the start of the episode. Again, I wouldn't expect this lockout to last much longer than the offseason, or maybe until the end of spring training. But I do believe that we will, once again, have a full MLB season in 2022. Thank you for listening. KCSU comes from Nosh Noko, a locally owned food delivery service from local restaurants that want to provide food delivery to the Noko community. Learn more about the Noko Nosh app and how to order food at nokonosh.com. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights for Tuesday, December 7th. The following story discusses black death at the hands of police. KCSU encourages our audience to practice informed listening, so those triggered by this topic are encouraged to turn down the radio or skip ahead by about one minute. Opening statements in the case of a former Minnesota police officer who said she mistook her gun for a taser when shooting Dante Wright begin this week. According to Amy Forleady and Steve Karnowski at the Associated Press, Kim Potter, a white former police officer, faces charges of first and second degree manslaughter after shooting and killing Wright, who is a black man. Potter's body cameras recorded the Brooklyn and Minnesota shooting, and 14 jurors will hear her case. Opening statements are expected to begin Wednesday. The jury is about 74% white, and those demographics just about match that of the county where Potter shot and killed Wright. The Associated Press says, quote, Legal experts have said juries that are diverse by race, gender, and economic background are necessary to minimize bias in the legal system, end quote. The Attorney General for the state of Michigan intends to investigate the recent school shooting in the town of Oxford. According to Matthew S. Schwartz from National Public Radio, the Attorney General reached out to offer Superintendent Tim Throne their services, saying they would be the best agency to handle it. Throne requested a third-party investigation into the shooting over the weekend, but Attorney General Dana Nessel said, quote, I didn't want to see the school district bring in a private law firm, where they are the client. I've seen it time and time again. They're not fully independent investigations when that occurs, end quote. Nestle added that the goal of the office would be to answer questions parents and community members have about what caused the shooting and if the school was potentially negligent, a concern that may be ignored if the case goes into the hands of a private investigator. A memorial to Holocaust victim Anne Frank in Idaho was vandalized with swastikas and other anti-Semitic and anti-minority statements Friday. According to Ala Elisar, at CNN, Boise Parks and Recreation quickly acted to cover the graffiti at the Anne Frank Human Rights Memorial as local law enforcement searched for the perpetrator of the vandalism. Boise Mayor Lauren McLean made a statement on Facebook denouncing the act, saying she stands with Jewish members of the Boise community. The Boise Anne Frank Human Rights Memorial is the only memorial specifically dedicated to Frank in the United States, making this crime especially upsetting to residents of Boise and Jewish people across the country. Hanukkah ended Monday and is a time when many Jewish communities celebrate with public menorah lightings and other public events. Many communities have started locking doors to synagogues and taken other safety measures as hate crimes and anti-Semitic incidences have increased in the United States. 
Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci said the Omicron COVID-19 variant does not appear to be a severe mutation when it comes to an increase in severe illness and death. According to Gene Johnson from the Associated Press, while Fauci said not to assume it's not dangerous, the current research into the variant leads him to believe it won't increase hospitalizations in the same way the Delta variant has. Fauci said Sunday that scientists working on COVID-19 research will need more information on the virus variant before determining how dangerous it truly is for Americans. Experts encourage U.S. residents to continue wearing masks and getting vaccines for COVID-19 to prevent transmission and severe illness in breakthrough cases. Fauci also addressed travel bans applied to African countries as a result of the variant, saying he hopes the U.S. will be able to lift the ban once more research is performed. The travel ban has been criticized by many, including United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Cases of the Omicron variant have been identified all over the United States now. That's all for national news highlights. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Today, I'm joined by Dr. John Nunez, president of Concordia College in New York, to discuss free expression on college campuses and the Bipartisan Policy Center's recent report on the matter. How are you doing today? Uh, great, Coda. Thanks so much for the opportunity to uh, talk with you today. Of course. So this study found that students have a relatively high level of trust for their institutions. Why does this matter when it comes to monitoring censorship? Uh, obviously, when you build cultures and environments of trust, um, you are able to also have the kind of conversations that are rigorous and robust and respectful. Uh, the conversations that emanate from environments where there is a, a feeling of trust and a feeling of a safety for those conversations to occur. All right. And then less than half of the general population thinks that university policies on expression are overall moving in a positive direction. That was about 42%. So how do you think that this should impact the policies being made by universities? One of the things, that's a great question, Coda. One of the things we discovered uh, as a part of this task force was the sense in which there is often a public viewpoint or a public perspective about the kind of free expression that is happening on college campuses that is um, skewed um, one way or another. So you have uh, people who, uh, in many cases, who may be progressive and uh, they feel that colleges uh, in, in certain cases, especially colleges like my own, which is a religiously based college, um, inhibit uh, free expression or um, have the sort of speech that inhibits the protection of, uh, of people in terms of their own rights and their own feeling of safety. And then you have others, maybe who are more conservative, who have heard some of the more outrageous hyperbolic news stories uh, where you have uh, more conservative speakers invited to colleges, college campuses who ended up getting either shutted down or uninvited. Uh, we, we think that these this does occur on college campuses, but it occurs much more um, rarely than it is often uh, purported or reported in the media. All right. And then on that topic, um, were private universities a focus of the study or did it generally focus on public institutions which have a requirement to pr pretty much allow most speakers on campus? So, Coda, the, the one of the pieces I delighted in in this study was that the Bipartisan Policy Center was very, very intentional and strategic in terms of who they chose uh, to be a part of the task force. So, for example, the task force was chaired by a former uh, Republican governor from Vermont and a former Democratic governor from the state of Washington. And built into the committee members, baked in, was a, uh, a diversity of perspective. That's one of the things that the study itself um, is really advocating for, is diversity of perspective. And that was built in. So, for example, I'm the president of a small, faith-based, uh, relatively conservative um, college in New York. And we had public institutions. We had private institutions. We had HBCUs. So there were a variety of institutions that were represented in the uh, study and in the research. All right. And then related to those perspectives, how is the population really selected for this survey? And was there a focus on prioritizing accurate demographics to the general population when research was being planned? Yeah. So you know, the Bipartisan Policy Center uh, is very skilled and very deft at um, conducting research 
that is uh, fair and balanced and is equitable and that comes from a, a variety of um, sources. So um, we, we spoke anecdotally um, and we also read reports. So I would say it was both and. It was both a kind of the phenomenological approach, what is actually happening on the ground uh, on our campuses because we wanted it to be rooted in reality at the same time that it was, uh, we, read, we, we, we read voluminous reports. There was lots of reading uh, that we had to do. I think there's a full, at the end of the report, I think you can see a full um, kind of uh, bio, um, uh, end notes uh, that include all of the various sources and resources which were used to um, develop and design the report. All right. And then more university students than non-student adults were concerned about a lack of censorship on... Oh, wait one second. I'm going to rephrase that question. Sure. Um, I think I did that wrong. Yeah. I'll just delete that part. All right. So can you explain how this information was surveyed among college students and whether or not that this was whether or not this was focused on issues like physical safety or if it was mostly limited to the question of just limiting speech? It was both and. Um, so it was both um, attention to physical safety. So, for example, uh, a lot of attention was paid to what does respectful res conversation look like across a diversity of perspectives. And, the, for example, um, student clubs and or associations are a great place where students can be sort of incubated in an environment of safety. Um, but one of the but one of the you know primary points that the uh, study um, uh, acknowledged was the need for kind of an epistemological or a, um, a a an understanding that viewpoints need to be based on more than just identity or feelings of safety. You, you sometimes hear students say in classrooms, you know, I, it, this just feels true to me. Well, I mean, that the feeling of truth needs to be supported by data. It needs to be supported by critical thinking. It needs to be supported by arguments that are rooted um, in, uh, in, in real theories and in real research. So, you know, you're a research university. Uh, that's exactly the sort of thing we need to see happening is the kind of critical thinking around uh, you know, that's data driven uh, and but yet respectful. So it's both I would say it's a both end. The buy in bipartisan policy is a serious thing. For sure. And then something else that this study really highlighted was that people seem to have a growing concern, not only about the ways that universities and the government are potentially censoring speech or not censoring speech, but also how large corporations and businesses monitor and restrict speech. Why is it so important to measure the comfort levels of people who might be working for those businesses or um, purchasing from those businesses when it comes to expressing their views within that, those um, those corporations. Yeah, free speech is you know the root of a free society. Free people deliberating questions robustly about how we order uh, our lives together, and to a certain extent, academic institutions must uh, assert their freedom from various external controls, especially those controls that might uh, be more time-bound uh, and more contextual. Uh, so, um, I, I, you know, I would, I would say that uh, um, it's important for the trustees to be a part of these kind of conversations because that's where a lot of these decisions are made, where policies are set for free expression. And that free expression, you know, must be robustly independent. And that, which means independent of, you know, we, well, one of the things we talked about in any number of our meetings was the way donors, including corporate donors, you know, often try to drive what's going on on campuses. And uh, obviously that's, you know, that can at times have a very deleterious and negative result if, if it's the tail wagging the dog, so to speak. Right. And then how do you think that recent events such as rising nationalism, maybe at some universities, as well as the capital attacks earlier this year, may have impacted how students and the general public really feel about censorship? Yeah, those are you know, those are, you know, very big issues. Um, and I think, again, the report attempts to identify this kind of space for free speech, which happens between the kind of idolatries of identity. So whether it's kind of 
uh, alt-right, white, radical, identitarian movements on the one hand, and I'm using uh, and I'm using uh, summarizing kind of terms. I realize that, or on the other hand, whether it's you know the, the sort of identity politics which posits human identity based on kind of some kind of external category or some kind of group uh, identification or affiliation. I would say on, on both sides, I think there was an attempt to uh, attempt to cultivate and curate environments in which speech happens that is, again, free from, I think those, so the answer to your question is significantly. <laughs> so the attacks, for example, uh, the, the events of January 6th had significant um, impact as have sort of, um, you know, John McWhorter, for example, has written recently about uh, the an almost religious-like faith that has emerged uh, among both uh, kind of progressives, which he calls elites, and among kind of identitarians, on the other hand. So this is, this is not healthy for a civic, civil society in which, uh, you know, we want full participation all right. And then to kind of summarize basically the source of all this study, can you tell us a little bit about the bipartisan, um, ah, the bipartisan policy center and what they do in general? Yeah, I, I'm not as familiar with uh, the bipartisan policy center. I, I know they uh, undertake um, research and uh, advocacy on any number of issues uh, that, um, as the name suggests, uh, brings people together across the uh, spectrum. Um, we are living in a time that is perceived as very uh, binary and very divided. Um, and I think the work of the Bipartisan Policy Center is more important than ever. Uh, my participation was mostly limited uh, to this uh, academic committee on a free expression and the design of a, a new roadmap. Map. And I was incredibly impressed with the measured tone and with the, as you, as you mentioned, the kind of research basis. Uh, for this report. All right. And then just so that I don't take up too much of your time today, um, we're going to finish up. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we go on our break? No, I just want to thank you for your interest in this. I think, you know, the future of a civil society in which uh, we have full participating adults <laughs> um, is, is dependent on higher education being a place and a space where these virtues are cultivated. And so this is a really important conversation. And I want to thank you, Kota, for inviting us to be a part of it. Thank you again so much for your time today. Um, and then once again, for those who might have just tuned in, I was joined today by Dr. John Nunez, who is the president of Concordia College and part of the panel to discuss free expression on college campuses through the Bipartisan Policy Center. If you missed any part of today's interview, you can check it out on the KCSU app. Um, available on both the Apple App Store and on the Android App Store and Google Play. And you can also check us out at our Spotify by searching KCSU News. Again, this is 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins with the Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be right back. Welcome, class. Today we'll be talking about the elements. We're going to start with boron, number five. This class is boron. <laughs> you know, Jimmy, boron is a trace element, so you actually need it to live. Wait a second. Who are you? I'm DJ Pompey. It's a crossover episode. Oh, I get it. So that's why science matters. That's exactly right, Jimmy. And it's why you should listen to me, DJ Pompey. And me, DJ Attorney at Law. On Thursdays from 5 to 7 p.m. to hear more about why science matters on our show, Science Matters.
And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports that over 90% of students and staff are vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. Under 1% of students and under 2% of employees have not yet submitted vaccine records or exemptions. The university reports over 4,500 cases of COVID-19 since May 2020, when CSU began recording cases. The pandemic preparedness team at CSU made a new post, which lists resources for students and community members over winter break, which can be accessed at covid.colostate.edu. Larimer County reports a high-risk score for COVID-19 and nearly 47,000 cases of it. Additionally, the county reports just under 400 deaths as a result of virus complications and a seven-day case rate of 285 cases per 100,000 residents. 65 COVID-19 patients currently receive treatment in area hospitals, and intensive care units are nearly at capacity, with utilization reaching 94% Monday night. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Masks are required in all indoor public spaces in the county, regardless of your vaccination status. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Monitor your health and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. The state of Colorado reports over 843,000 cases of COVID-19, and the state is nearing 10,000 deaths as a result. Nearly 8.9 million vaccines have been administered in the state, and almost 3.7 million Coloradans are fully immunized against the virus that causes COVID-19. The CDC reports over 49 million cases of COVID-19 nationally, along with over 785,000 deaths. Community transmission is high across the country, and over 75% of people over the age of 5 received at least one vaccination. The Omicron variant has made it into the U.S. and into the state of Colorado. For more information on this variant, stay tuned for national news in about 15 minutes. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, for Anton Schindler with his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Tuesday. The Federal Trade Commission sued to prevent the largest business merger in the semiconductor chip industry. According to Bobby Allen at National Public Radio, the $40 billion deal was blocked in an effort to prevent monopolizing practices. FTC officials argued that if NVIDIA bought chip designer ARM, it would harm consumers by raising prices and giving them fewer options. Regulators in both North America and Europe commented on issues with the merger, and the FTC's suit focused on maintaining rival companies for NVIDIA, which the merger would have actively harmed. FTC head Lena Khan has focused her efforts on limiting monopolies in the tech world recently, including in this action to sue NVIDIA. Meta's WhatsApp now allows users to set their chats so they disappear after a period of time. According to John Porter at The Verge, the new disappearing messages feature allows users to delete all new direct messages after a set period of time. They have the option of deleting after 24 hours or 90 days. WhatsApp says that turning on the new feature now won't impact previous messages though, which would have to be deleted manually. The new feature does not apply to group chats and can be turned off for individual chats. WhatsApp originally launched this feature over a year ago, but only had the option for users to delete after seven days. With the option to remove message history either within a day or three months, users now have a better range when it comes to clearing out their chat information based on their time needs. Cybersecurity firm Mandiant reported that Russian state hackers continue efforts to infiltrate U.S. and other national governments as well as private corporations. According to Eric Tucker and Frank Bajak at the Associated Press, the report came out Monday, just a year after the SolarWinds cyber espionage scandal. 
The hackers were reported to steal content believed to be, quote, relevant to Russian interests, end quote. The firm recommended that security firms keep an eye out for the techniques used by foreign hackers in the report. Over 100 organizations experienced a breach, and many of these groups lose information when they get hacked. Since the United States does not require organizations, private citizens, or companies to disclose each time a breach occurs, the exact number of breaches in the past year is unknown. That's all for Tech News. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. And now, for the weather. Today we saw cold temperatures and partly cloudy skies with a high of 49 and a low of 28. Wednesday warms up just a bit to a high of 56 with a low of 34, but winds will be heavier as well. Thursday, winds slow down and temperatures cool down a bit to a high of 53 with a low of 26. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins or wherever you get your podcasts by searching KCSU News. I'm Kota Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.